1: And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
1: Are you looking for a view of the world that's a bit different? Hi, I'm Jason Palmer, a host of The Weekend Intelligence, a podcast from The Economist. Join us to hear the stories that matter most to our correspondents and editors. Every Saturday, we introduce you to people and ideas that take you outside the ordinary and expand your horizons one episode at a time. Join us and see the world from a new perspective. To listen free until May 31st, search Spotify for The Weekend Intelligence.
0: And welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorne. Today's podcast features a conversation with the American historian Jill Lepore. Jill is Professor of American History at Harvard, and she's also a staff writer at The New Yorker. Her latest book, These Truths, is a broad-ranging single-volume history spanning the entire story of the United States and has also been shortlisted for the prestigious Kundal History Prize, of which we are a media partner. Matt Elton, the editor of our sister publication, BBC World Histories, spoke to Jill down the line to find out more.
3: The first thing to say really is writing a single-volume history of the US is quite an ambitious thing to do. What questions or kind of goals drove you to do it, I suppose?
4: I uh, felt there was a quite urgent public need for uh, an account of the whole history of the United States. These kinds of books, these ambitious, sweeping narrative histories of the nation were fashionable in earlier generations and have very much fallen out of fashion for reasons that are, I think, uh, solid and uh, understandable and then for some quite poor reasons. But whatever the reason for the falling out of favor Of this kind of book, I think public discourse has really suffered for its absence. So I just felt a kind of civic obligation as an American historian looking at a nation that was uh, unraveling itself at the seams um, to uh, make an attempt at resurrecting the genre. Mm.
3: You say that the nation was kind of unraveling itself as you saw it. What period were you writing this history during and did the events happening in the news shift how you wrote it or how you approached it?
4: I, well, much of the work in the book and the research on which the book is based is work I've done for the last 30 years as a professor and as a researcher and writer of American history. So the book draws on a lot of my own historical scholarship and a lot of, you know, my reading of the incredible revolution in American historical scholarship within the academy that has informed my teaching for the last three decades. So it's a book that is very long in the making. It's an attempt to really pull together scholarship of of almost really a half century. This is The last time these kinds of books were written was a very long time ago. Um, so in that sense, it's it's a book that has been uh, gestating for quite a long time. I actually started writing it in 2014. Um, I mean, writing you know, this book per se, outlining it chapter by chapter and, and writing it. And a lot happened in the years, you know, I wrote it 2014, 2015, 2016, uh, finished it in, in the middle of 2017. So in those four years, a lot of things happened in the United States. But no, they didn't uh, change how I understood the, the four or five centuries of history that I was recounting.
3: Mm, thank you so much. Um, what interests me is that your book is both a narrative history and also thematically divided. Um how do you think that structure is a useful prism through which to understand U.S. history?
4: Well, the book is pretty relentlessly chronological. Uh, I write chronologically. I teach chronologically. I think historians who work in other with other organizing apparatuses usually are, are kind of pushing a ball uphill. I mean, gravity is chronology <laughs> is like gravity, and um, I think you fight against it at your peril as a historian. <laughs> Um, so the book is is relentlessly chronological, and I also, uh, all things considered, wrote it fairly quickly, rushing through time, as I wanted the book to have a kind of headlong read. As, as For readers, I wanted it to feel like a page-turner. So it is, you know, as you say, it's a narrative history. I tell a story, but the story is told chronologically and yet also organized thematically, because it's not... You know, there used to be in antiquity these great timelines of history that would be compiled, right? Sort of a list of events, and uh, and these were to be studied. And sort of it's a kind of antiquarianism, right, to make a list of things that happened. That's not what 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 any kind of uh, scholar does, right? We we know that we can make a list of the things that happened, but that's not that's not very helpful to a reader. So each chapter in the book while proceeding chronologically, is also making an argument about a specific kind of change over time in the period under consideration. So, you know, it's just my obligation as a writer to sort through, OK, these things happened in this period, but what holds them all together? What can I, as a writer, use as a vehicle to explain them as a coherent set of events that that under which I can make an argument about change over time in this era?
3: Um, how, how would you like people to view the events of 1492, 1493?
4: Uh, I think that's a—as I say in the book, Europeans understood um, the so-called discovery of America in 1492. When they made their these chronicles, lists of important events in the history of the world, you know, there would be the birth of Jesus Christ, the discovery of America, the invention of the printing press. I mean, th- there were these this kind of like top ten— <laughs> list of events that changed the course of human history as Europeans understood it. Um, And it later became conventional when early American historians wanted to write the history of the nation, that rather than beginning the history of the United States, where it seems logically to begin in 1776, when the nation declares its existence in the Declaration of Independence, it became conventional to start the story of America with 1492 I lay out all that in my own discussion of what happened in 1492, which is to say, these understandings of that event uh, call our own attention to who is doing the telling. And we know, of course, now that there are all kinds of reasons not to begin a history of the United States in 1492. There are and have been in the United States for many years, for many decades uh, a fairly significant political campaign to no longer even celebrate um, Columbus Day, which is a, a national holiday in the United States honoring Christopher Columbus in that voyage, to no longer celebrate that or to replace it with Indigenous Peoples Day. Um, so what I, what I want uh, readers to think about 1492 is to think about it at all. That is to say, to think about it critically, to engage with the question and to refuse the... I think, easy temptation to sort of move into one corner of the room or the other. Americans in our highly hyperpolarized society tend to want to sort themselves out immediately upon any question. So, you know, either uh, you believe that Christopher Columbus was a hero and 1492 is a really important date and we should be celebrating Christopher Columbus on Christopher Columbus Day, uh, or you believe that Christopher Columbus was a genocidal murderer and we should no longer even speak his name and we should celebrate only Indigenous People's Day, like as if they're this sort of catastrophic either or thinking that plagues American public discourse is extraordinarily damaging to the to humanistic inquiry, right? Neither of those positions is defensible on any kind of evidentiary grounds. Right? Like, n- neither of those things is true in the sense that it is unquestionable. It is—those are both political, highly ideological political positions. Um, so I— You know, the first chapter of this, you know, thousand-page history takes pains to consider what that controversy actually means and what are—what is the the scale of the loss of life? What is the scale of that genocide? Really wrestle with those numbers and also to think about individual people and their lives, uh, not to just kind of submit to— The the kind of waving of a political opinion about that, but to conduct an inquiry into that and to think about what it is about why Columbus left such a legacy, what it is about the technology of writing uh, and his use of that technology from the moment that he uh, spied land that has shaped and informed our understanding of this history for centuries.
3: To turn to your first section subject then, which is the idea, you write that Americans have become so divided that they no longer agree, if they ever did, about what those ideas are or were. What's your take on what those ideas were then?
4: So, you know, as I lay out in the book, which is called These Truths, the nation was founded on these three self-evident truths, uh, claims about natural rights and popular sovereignty and the consent of the governed. And we, uh, you know, kind of mumble through them. Uh, as Americans can, uh, most Americans can recite some piece of that. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That we are endowed by our Creator with certain inalienable rights, and among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You know what those terms mean uh, is is by no means clear, I think, to most people. And what the first quarter of the book does is. Not take those ideas as self-evident, but understand where they came from, excavate their history and their origins. Because I think there would be some Americans who would say they the, these ideas came down from the heavens, like uh, the Ten Commandments came to Moses on Mount Sinai, but they didn't. These ideas, especially the idea of political equality and especially the idea of natural rights— come out, emerge out of a crucible of tremendous violence, out of the atrocities of conquest and enslavement in particular, in which enslaved peoples, conquered peoples, asked again and again and again, asked Europeans, indigenous peoples and Africans, asked Europeans, by what right have you taken our land? By what right do you take our, our labor? By what right have you stolen our lives? And it elicits among Western European political philosophers a whole new discourse of rights, in a whole new consideration of the natural state of humankind and the origins of order and government. Uh, it, it, it is this very, uh, s- the scale of these atrocities itself uh, is a kind of catalyst to a new kind of thinking. And I, I, I think it's just quite important to reckon with that. That isn't, that isn't to say, uh, uh, it, that is actually a different way to think about the nature of violence and political violence and the origins of ideas about liberty and equality and rights and to understand how tangled up they are in experiences of oppression and yet how emancipatory they are.
3: Mm. Um, Rushing through, because there's so much to cover in such an amazing sweeping book, um, we turn to the American Revolution. Um, you say that a nation born in revolution will forever struggle against chaos. How much does the US's founding day shape what came afterwards, do you think?
4: I think in some ways the revolution shaped the future of the country significantly less than the constitution did. I mean, a revolution is literally the, the re, a revolving, a turning of the wheel and Americans understood their revolution as a revolution that needed to stop and in particular they looked to france whose revolution did not stop and the wheel kept turning the revolution got bloodier and bloodier and more and more anarchic in the united states after the revolution there was an ex- which was itself quite radical there was an ex- extraordinary amount of momentum to stop the wheel from turning anymore and to kind of right the political order. And that uh, momentum was all, uh, that was what led to the, the drafting and then the ratification of the Constitution in 1787. The Constitution is not, radical in the way that the revolution was radical the constitution looks for stability uh, it's radical in the sense that it, it is it is an entire rejection of aristocracy uh, it is it is far more democratic than any uh frame of government anywhere else in the world at that time but but it is conservative in the sense of uh establishing uh, uh, three branches of government of course along the order of the mixed constitution in england that looks for stability in uh, distributing political power
3: across groups, to what extent did the authors of the Constitution draw explicitly on history?
4: Um, they all believed that it was essential to study history to uh, even consider yourself as eligible for public service of any kind. Um, and the you know, the chief architect of the Constitution, James Madison of Virginia, spent a great deal of time reading history and particularly making an inventory essentially of all of the the fates of every other republican government in all of human history Uh, each of the drafters of the constitution each of the delegates to the constitutional convention made some version of that study madison by far was the most brilliant of them i mean save benjamin franklin but he wasn't uh, uh super much involved in the drafting in that sense um but yeah, they thought it was urgently necessary. What they were trying to do, they considered themselves to be, as Alexander Hamilton said, um, students of the science of politics. They were trying to make a science of politics in the sense that they would use every the history of every other nation uh, as a body of evidence for conducting a political experiment. And that political experiment would take all the lessons of history and attempt to design an experiment that would... That would succeed in which uh, people would not uh, fall prey to the fate of every other government in the history of humankind, which is to say uh, set up possibly to proceed through the mechanism of uh, reason and choice and election uh, every other government set up in the history of humankind had at some point or another descended in to civil war, to coercion, to violence, to force, to demagoguery, to tyranny, or to conquest. So what was a way to set up a government that that would be immune from all of those fates, that, that would not suffer those fates? So you couldn't, in other words, there was no way to craft a constitution without the study of history.
3: Mm. Um, in the words of one reviewer, uh, they suggested that the framing of the constitution was done with rare genius. Do you agree? Um, and what problems did it end up causing?
4: I, I do think the framing of the Constitution was done with rare genius. Uh, I think considering everything that was on the table, there are some extraordinary uh, ex- extraordinary provisions to the Constitution that have made it prove durable, in uh, much more durable than anyone at the time would possibly have expected. But I also agree with... Uh, Uh, The former Supreme Court Justice Thurgood Marshall, uh, who was first African-American justice of our Supreme Court, who in 1987, at the bicentennial of the Constitution, refused to be involved in the pomp and circumstance and the hullabaloo and the rallying and the celebrations and the veneration of the Constitution. And he gave this quite beautiful speech in which he said— I mean, the Constitution sanctioned slavery. I mean, it, it, the, the Constitution failed to engage with, in any meaningful sense, with the sovereignty claims of native peoples. The Constitution did not understand women as legally persons. So you can't just celebrate it as if it is a sacred document divinely inspired sure there's a lot of genius in it but it was flawed from the very start and what marshall said in 1987 200 years after the constitution was drafted is that what he wanted to celebrate was the history ever since that is to say the history of americans struggling to realize the promise of the constitution
3: the divide over slavery would eventually split the nation in two can we see the civil war do you think as effectively being two nations vying for control of the same continent
4: Yeah, I think it's kind of important to think of the nation as divided into three. Uh, There were four million enslaved people in the United States in 1860, um, counting of the census of 1860. That is a huge population. And although those uh, uh, those people were not politically empowered in any way, they were unfree, they do, I think, uh, it's important to understand four million people as a body politic, that is to say— even as a political party uh, a disenfranchised political party but essentially as a political party that forms a union with uh the federal government the the union itself uh in uh, in opposition to the confederacy the su- the succeeding seceding southern states um but i think you know recent scholarship on the civil war has very meaningfully suggested the many ways in which the war is a war of emancipation waged as much as anything else by those four million enslaved people who uh, are very much engaged in the process of, of emancipation.
0: Still to come on the History Extra podcast.
4: There's not a one of those people that I don't think is really important, and every single one of them is there to advance an idea that, that I think the reader really needs to be able to hold on to and is a little bit better able to hold on to it if it's attached to a person.
2: We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings, that frustrating thing your mum does, or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest
1: And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.comslash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway. And on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one Mick Crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem
2: of a detour.
3: Something your book does really strongly is draw out the stories of individual people and their voices. Are there any that particularly stood out for you or whose stories you think have been underserved in the past?
4: Well, the book is chiefly a political and intellectual history. There's a lot of other kind of history that I paid a lot of attention to and that is central to my argument and my storytelling. I spend a lot of time with religious history. I spend a ton of time in the history of technology, especially technologies of communications. But again, it's chiefly a political history and an intellectual history. And a lot of that is fairly heavy lifting. So the way I dealt with that was to have the big ideas uh, and the big political movements that I was attempting to chronicle um, be uh, explained by way of characters so this the the account is a really long history but it's really animated by people um, by characters who we get to kind of get to know you know what they look like and what they sounded like and where they were born and maybe someone had six fingers and someone else had blue eyeglasses and like people that you could kind of picture and remember and attach uh, attach yourself a little bit because these and these are people that held important ideas or uh, expressed—were involved in important political movements. And um, I, there's not a one of those people that I don't think is really important, and every single one of them is there to advance an idea that that I think the reader really needs to be able to hold on to and is a little bit better able to hold on to it if it's attached to a person. So where I think in um, you know in a more conventional history— Political ideas are, to the extent that they're attached to characters, are attached, you know, maybe to presidents, like we we might think about Andrew Jackson and Jacksonian democracy, you know, or we we would think about FDR and the New Deal, Um, but we really wouldn't. And then there'd be just the masses of people around these, swirling around these ideas. My book doesn't work that way. I mean, we spend time—we certainly have, you know, Andrew Jackson is a character and FDR is a character, but I spend a lot of time with, you know, Polly Murray, who uh, was a civil rights activist and a really important legal thinker in terms of reinterpreting the 14th Amendment, uh, had and had a quite fascinating life uh, as a bridge figure between the civil rights movement and the women's movement, Or I spend a lot of time with Phyllis Schlafly, the conservative— Warrior of the middle decades of the of the twentieth century, I spend a lot of time, oh, uh, with Mary Lease, who was a Kansas farmer and a leader of the populist movement, um, or with Walter Lippmann, who was a political commentator, quite a quite a shrewd political commentator, concerned about the crisis of democracy during the years of uh, of mass democracy, the early years of mass democracy and mass communications. So um, I. I love writing about people, but the people are really here a means to make arguments about
3: ideas. Thank you so much. Um, Turning to the middle of the 19th century, you say that the great debates during that period were concerning the soul and the machine. The debates still continue today, do you think?
4: Well, the coming of the Industrial Revolution elicits all manner of responses. I mean, we can most easily track... Uh, in the sense because it's most easily quantifiable, the consequences for economic well-being or the inequality of wealth or growing, you know, the, the introduction of a kind of wage economy leads to then a wage gap or, you know, there are all these kind of numerical ways of tracking the economic consequences uh, and also the purchase, increased purchasing power and changing standing of living. Like when we think about industrialism, we tend to think about those numbers. But a great debate took place at the same time uh, in the United States, and of course in England as well, and in in and, and in every other part of the industrializing world, about what industrialism meant for humanity—not uh, for could you buy a mattress for five cents instead of five dollars, and therefore more people had mattresses—but how did you understand your fate in the world? Were we all kind of stuck in a machine now? What was? Is there some sense uh, that? Our notion of our place in the world relative to other people, relative to, you know, goodness and decency and generosity and the spirit that ties us to one another and to and to the natural world, that these things had been demeaned or diminished through mechanization. The kind of stuff you see, you know, from a conservative angle from Thomas Carlyle um, in the UK that you hear... Um, very much from the left, from Henry David Thoreau in the United States. Uh, we, it elicits this whole kind of romance with nature, on the one hand, that becomes a really important uh, longstanding tradition in American writing and in American activism. It leads to the environmental movement. Or uh, in the United States, mechanization very much accelerates uh, uh, the process of religious revival, a, a, a return from a very secular era in American history, that the era of the founding of the nation, uh, to uh, of an era of, of of evangelical Christianity being uh, the most dominant force in American politics, leading to the abolition movement, the temperance movement, the peace movement, the women's movement. The evangelical awakening of the 19th century is itself a kind of rejection of the fury and relentlessness uh, of the machine uh, that is of, of, of mechanization itself. So there are all kinds of influences and, and consequences for that kind of tectonic shift. And we, we I think, as, as your question suggests, we see a version of that today uh, in what sometimes people call our second machine age, uh, which has elicited uh, all manner of reaction of spiritual crisis— of a sense of environmental—not uh, just a sense, but, of course, a chronicle of, of environmental decay and catastrophe, uh, of atomization of communities, um, alienation of individuals. You would think, based on the pattern of history, that, that the West is, is uh, very um, ripe for religious revival. And it's possible, I suppose, you could argue that some brands of populism that are um, have taken hold in the US and in and, and Europe as well have that quality, that, that quality of zealotry that we would associate with a religious revival.
3: Mm. Can we trace a history of populism uh, of, a, a long way back through American history?
4: Absolutely. Um, you know, one of those founding truths is the sovereignty of the people, an idea that Americans import from the battle between Parliament and the monarchy in the 17th century, when uh, the idea of the sovereignty of the people is first asserted as a legal fiction to defeat the legal fiction of the divinity, the divine right of kings. So the sovereignty of the people has become this kind of sacred idea in England because it was so necessary uh, to clip the wings of the monarchy. And it becomes a precious idea at the founding of the United States as well, what it really means is not entirely clear, but populists will always take hold of that idea and make political claims uh, that they that they are finally, finally allowing for the expression of the sovereignty of the people. In the United States, populism doesn't have any natural affinity with either with any position on the political spectrum. For most of the 19th century, populism was very much a left wing movement, a critique. Not so much of government, but of corporations and of the power of, say, railroad companies uh, and banking, big banks, and the way that they um, left the people powerless and had essentially denied the people of their franchise. Of course, you know, beginning with the Tea Party movement, really, here in the early 21st century,
3: populism has been very much a movement of the right moving from populism to the role of the mass media, how much do we need to understand the role of the media and of communications more generally when we think about the history of the US?
4: I think um, it's very useful to have a few more data points than, say, the last five minutes, which is, I think, what most of us walk around with in our head or maybe, you know, the time horizon that most of us carry around in our head about the influence of technologies of communication on political arrangements maybe begins with you know, the first iPhone or with the founding of Facebook. You know, these are developments in the last 15 years. Uh, I sought in this account to offer a time horizon that begins in 1492 with Christopher Columbus uh, and his quill and his journal of printed, you know, of paper on which he writes down what, what what he sees and what he wants to report to the king and queen of Spain, that technologies of communication are and have always been Uh, crucial tools for the exertion of power they have been tools both of tyrants and of uh, uh, democrats of people seizing power from tyrants so that when we think about you know in the u.s oh black lives matter is a movement of the social of social media wouldn't have been possible without social media there are analogs uh, throughout history that have that kind of emancipatory Utopianism to them, Frederick Douglass in the 19th century, uh, 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 an escaped enslaved person who won't be, became a famous orator and one of the most important statesmen of, uh, of the United States in the 19th century, believed that photography would end slavery. Uh, that, In the same way that sort of Black Lives Matter advocates think that social media and posting images of police brutality— has this you know technologically carries this political capacity to upend existing political arrangements, Douglass thought that about photography that if people could only see um, black men and women as they truly are the way that a photograph captures you as opposed to a racial character, which is really all that Americans had seen uh, white Americans had seen that this would this would be kind of irrefutable evidence of the equality of all people uh, so there's there's a, there's there are all kinds of moments in American history where I linger over the consequences of technological change. I spend a lot of time with the weekly newspaper versus the daily newspaper versus the tele newspaper that can report news by telegraph across the continent versus the origins of the radio and the federal broadcasting system and the rules and regulations that that uh, uh, oversaw political communication under the broadcast era that bridges radio and television and then looking to the rise of Cable news uh, in the U.S. in the 1980s and 1990s, and down to the internet and, and social media. But that if you see, if you have that much longer, if you like stretch out the, the, the history like like taffy to as long and thin as it is, you just have a much better sense of the patterns over time, the streaks across the taffy. Mm.
3: Are there any uh, episodes in U.S. history that you think aren't properly understood, particularly outside of the U.S.? Um.
4: I think outside of the U.S., it's quite likely that uh, the picture of American history that people carry around is, is fairly similar to the picture that most Americans carry around, which is sort of like a storybook or comic book version. I mean, a highly reduced and simplified version with a few stock characters who are cartoon versions of themselves. You know, some kind of, you know, begins with i don't know paul revere and sam adams in boston and goes to thomas jefferson and Virginia and benjamin franklin we jump ahead then to the presidency of andrew jackson and we look at lincoln and the civil war and then we jump ahead maybe to wilson and the u.s entering on a world stage and then we have fdr and the beginnings of the modern liberal world order and then oh no vietnam america's power has been challenged and then there's this kind of weird post vietnam kind of political mayhem and viciousness in American politics that leaves the rest of the world very vulnerable to uh the the the, the very uh, mercurial new American political culture. Like I think that's that's how most Americans if they picture American history they picture some version of that. And I don't I don't think that's um I mean you could tell me maybe I'm wrong that's not uh, you know kind of that cartoon version of my, is not probably uh maybe maybe that's too cartoony for what you think people carry around in um in the UK but uh I think that you know, misses most things. <laughs> it's not that it's wrong. It's just, um, you know, in England, kids used to have to memorize the monarchs, right? I mean, maybe you mm. did still as a kid. You'd like commit the list to memory. Is if that...
3: I, I I didn't luckily because I would have been terrible at it. But yes,
4: <laughs> <laughs> but as if that little spine, uh, you know, from. I don't know. Maybe you start with King John and Magna Carta or whatever, and you go forward down to Elizabeth II. Like, what does that actually tell you? It's like the names of the kings. I don't know. Like that, you've got maybe you've got the spine. It's argument that that is an important element of the uh, of of the body, but you've you know missing all the flesh, and you're missing the vertebrae, and you're (laughs) you're missing the head. Like you're missing everything. (laughs) I I just don't think that. um, And I I don't think unlike. a nation like Germany uh which has you know now and has had for several decades a whole tradition of reckoning with the past and and a sense that that ordinary Germans carry around with them on their shoulders the burden of the nation's past Americans don't have that, so the nation is you know our history is burdened with atrocity and inequality and hypocrisy, but our history is also lifted and buoyed by acts of great heroism and courage. Uh, by ingenuity and invention and leadership. And uh, I think that the version that most people carry around in their heads is one or the other of those things. Either the story of America is a story of triumph and freedom or the story of America is a story of atrocity and and decay. And... um, neither of those is true those that's another sort of either or proposition that does that just can't stand can't withstand close inspection and the trick of 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 actually you know caring about history uh is trying to reconcile those two different accounts uh and weigh uh weigh them both and find the uneasy
3: path forward all the same um are there any stories in this book that you would have liked to include but you you didn't or you couldn't
4: oh yeah there's <laughs> I spent a lot of time at night lying in bed thinking, "Oh, I really wish I could add room for this, or yeah, there's tons of stuff I would have loved to been able to tell, but you know i it's a long book and it's a long book on purpose. I wanted people to spend the time, you know, kind of dedicate themselves to the idea that if you want to see something in a long time horizon, you actually have to spend a little bit of time reading about it, but i it couldn't be longer like it, it couldn't be more than a thousand pages, so there were some. Awfully tough decisions all the way down the road, uh, things, you know, I continue to regret. I mean, not because I thought there were mistakes, but just because, you know, people whose stories I found to be really beautiful or ideas that uh, seemed to me very vital. I guess if I had to put, like, one thing in a category, it would be a sense of, of local place. Um, I would have loved to have been able to bring alive on the page, you know, Santa Fe uh, or... You know, Lake Michigan or, you know, like just places like set people down in a place and sort of smell the air and feel the wind on your face. And the book doesn't work that way. There's very little sense of place. I mean, things, events happen in places all over the country but I don't describe them uh, because I, I, it's very much argument-driven, event-driven, and people-driven. And I just couldn't also have seen.
0: <laughs>
3: <laughs> yes. Um, there's often a sense that America's undergoing a uniquely discordant political moment. Having written this book, do you think that's the case?
4: I think this is uh, a, a pressure point, a turning point in American history. But the fact that what's going on in the UK has so many parallels to what's going on in the US suggests to me that the forces that lie behind this turning point are not distinctively American by any means. Hmm.
3: And 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 do you think studying and reading and writing its history can help us feel positive about the future? Or do you think that's not the role of history?
4: Yeah, that's not the role of history. I mean, I tend to find solace in history because I, I genuinely think that uh, – you, I didn't want to die in childbirth, die of malaria, walk around with smallpox pox on my face, see my children die in infancy, not be able to vote. Like there's very little when you look at the past. <laughs> there's like appeals to me, um, so I don't. I don't find solace in. I don't, I don't. I'm not nostalgic about the past, and I find the history that peddles nostalgia to be quite insidious. At the same time, I, I, I do find solace in the past because I see that people faced struggles, not altogether unlike struggles that many people are facing today,
0: and nevertheless found a way through them. That was Jill Lepore. Her book, These Truths, A History of the United States, is on sale now, published by W.W. W. Norton & Company. For a new take on the American Revolution, pick up the latest copy of BBC World Histories magazine, which is on sale now. Thanks for listening. Today's podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in again on Monday when Julia Lovell will be talking about the global legacy of Maoism.
1: A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep.